You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Um, still uh, in separate studios with uh, me and Emily, but it's uh, it kind of seems to work out. It's I, I think we're learning how to make it work out. <laughs> yeah. I, I, and yeah, I was, I was telling Mickey, it is a little frustrating uh, because what used to be two files I would have to edit turns into like five. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's just a lot more to keep track of, a lot more file management. Um, but overall, I think we're we're managing to keep it together. So <laughs> Well, and I'm having to learn how to use technology from scratch. So <laughs> this has been an adventure because yeah. you handled all this before this point. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. And it's um, fortunately, I did learn some uh, before this. I learned a lot of shortcuts to make my editing quicker. So that that helped. And uh, so it's it's been a little bit. <laughs> it's been a little bit nuts, but I, I've been able to put it together. Yeah, the main the main issue is the file management and making sure that I name stuff with a consistent enough formula that I can find it. And remember, because <laughs> the other thing is I'm running off of, you know, your computer and my computer and Mickey's mm-hmm. computer. So I've got all this stuff uh, that we've got to put on the extra hard drive and bounce around. <laughs> and we have to hope that I have a strong enough signal on any given day to upload stuff to that hard drive. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it just gets. Yeah, no, it's but we do it because we love it. Yeah, so. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So. Um, but yeah, so when we last left, uh, uh, Jonathan had just defeated the Philistines with his armor bearer mm-hmm. and, yep. um, then Saul decided to say something stupid. I mean, uh, yeah, which I guess say and do <laughs> things much. that are not really right. That's kind of his MO. <laughs> yeah, this is, well, you know, you've made the Andy Dwyer comparison in the past and this is definitely keeping with that, but I think he kind of starts moving past the Andy Dwyer stereotype or image yeah, he, from here on out. He definitely moves out of that. He, this is where you, you start seeing him turn and uh, he, he becomes less um, bumbly and more vindictive. I think is Yeah, he becomes we... the villain. So uh, really in the story and you kind of see the um, you kind of see the progression and you, you see how different things in his life impacted that and influenced him to become kind of this almost evil person. Yeah. And this is kind of this really is where we begin to to understand that all of these things that have gone before really are impacting who he is. And he is changing from that young guy who was out looking for his father's donkeys. And it's kind of hard to remember that's even the same person as this guy, because he was met right. with such enthusiasm from Samuel and the people in the beginning. And then we get to here and we're in chapter 14 and I'm going to pick it up at verse 25. and. Um, but he's he's going to he's just being revealed. And this this is what this chapter is about is revealing how awful he really is. So I'm just going to kind of summarize this ver- summarize verse 25 through 28. Uh, Jonathan, he's he's in the forest of honey. So this is implying that this isn't just a single tree, but there is like multiple trees where the bees have colonized and the honey is just dripping from the trees. Matter of fact, when he gets the honey for himself. 
he will reach out with his staff and just get a little bit on the stick. I mean, he's not having to work for it. That's how abundant it is. Yeah. And the, the Bible says that his eyes become bright. So, you know, he, he perked up. He'd been without food for a while. He'd been in this major battle. Uh, even before anybody else had been in a battle, it makes sense that this guy is hungry. And it's at that point that he's told, your father has imposed an oath on the people. And we are told that the people are faint because of the oath. So verse 29 through 30, this is Jonathan's reply. And it's kind of interesting to me, uh, all the little details in here. So we're, I'm going to read it and then we'll go through it and we'll talk about why this is a really troubling passage to hear from Jonathan. So Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat of the Philistines has not been great. So the fact that he's saying this shows a, ba a basic lack of respect for his father and mm -hmm. king. And I think sometimes we overlook that a son of a king should not be talking this way. He should be, oh, my goodness, dad said that I should have done this. But instead, he just flat out says, dad's causing problems. He's troubling the land. And that's a theologically loaded term. And we're going to come back to that. But then he, he says that Saul's the reason that their victory isn't as great as it could have been. I mean, he's directly blaming the king for the fact things are not as full and total as far as the warfare goes as they should have been. Mm. And you don't do that. Not in an ancient culture where a king literally holds your life in his hands. You don't do that. You don't do that in an ancient culture where a king is the representative of a god. And even though Saul isn't a representative of a god in the way that other nations viewed their gods, he's still a representative of Yahweh because he's been chosen by Yahweh in order to lead this country. But mm -hmm. troubled is the, the key word here. It, it's echar. Uh, it's most notably used in Joshua 7. And that's when Achan takes the, the spoils from Jericho that he's not supposed to. And, you know, one man's foolishness almost destroys the nation. And it's only by God's grace that it doesn't. And we also find a car in 1 Kings 18, 17 through 18. And there's a dispute at this point between Ahab and Elijah. And they're both saying the other one has troubled the land. And when you put all this together, the implication is. We're talking about someone whose poor choices or deliberate actions have the ability to hurt the entire nation. Mm -hmm. And so when Jonathan says this about his dad, he's really making a huge insult against Saul at this point. And it's not just it's not just him, you know, working through what he thinks about it. There there are implications with these words. So 31 through 33, we learn that Saul's oath has caused the people to sin. And, and the people, you know, they had fought a battle that had ranged 15 miles. Yeah. And I don't, you know, when you walk 15 miles fighting someone, swinging a, a sword or, you know, a, a rake or throwing rocks or all the things that would have been involved in, in ancient warfare. That's going to take a toll. I don't care how good a shape you're in, how, you know, how good you are at what you do. This is something that's going to cause ex exhaustion and make you hungry. Oh, no, no doubt. <laughs> I mean, I, 
I work maintenance and I, I average about 30,000 steps, which is near 15 miles in a day. And yeah, when I'm done, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, think about the, the adrenaline that's going, the, the, the excitement that's happening. I mean, there is so much contributing to the fact that the people really are in a, a very vulnerable position physically. And so in the evening, as soon as everything slows down, they begin to slaughter the, the animals that they captured in, in battle. And the Bible specifically says they slaughtered the animals on the ground and the people ate the blood. Now, that's disturbing because I mean, you, you kind of get this, this imagery of them just kind of digging into these animals even before, you know, just the raw carcass and not being able to cook it or any of that. Now, what this means precisely has kind of been debated. And it could mean that one, they're, they're eating the meat before it is cooked, or it could mean that they were eating the meat before it had been offered properly as a sacrifice and drained. It, it, could be either one. It could be a combination of both of those things. But the the fact that the people are doing this shows the level of desperation. And in verse 33, we find out that Saul has to be told, hey, the people aren't doing what's correct. And whenever I hear this, one of the things that I'm reminded of is Eli's son. When when the people have to tell the priest, mm -hmm. this isn't right. When When the people are having to correct leadership, there's a problem. Right. And so this is a huge tip off. Why, why would you want a leader who doesn't even know the most basic things, which in Judaism, eating the blood, consuming blood of any, in any way, even a steak that, that's not cooked well enough, that's a huge taboo. You don't do it. Right. So, you know, Saul, it, it's only after he gets told what the people are doing that he says, hey, this has got to stop. And he commands for a large stone to be brought over. And probably what, what they're doing is they're putting the animals at this point on top of the stone and they're letting the head hang off and the blood's being drained on the ground. So this allows for the blood to, to flow from the carcass and, and then the meat would have been cooked. And so the fact do, do they have any, um, oh, sorry, do, do there, is there any, uh, I know you like the weird stuff whenever you're doing the research. <laughs> Has anybody tried to connect this to the, like the vampire passages or? Uh, there, there has been, but the, the links were so tenuous. It, it's like, it's not even worth trying to, to pursue. It, it was, you know, <laughs> at that point, I mean, it's a sensational topic to begin with, but at the same time, this was over sensationalized. It's like, yeah, you're just looking for anything in order to, to support your point. And yeah. this doesn't even really work. So, uh, you know, I'm willing to look at something with a well-reasoned argument and I, you know vampirism how, how well reasoned are we going to get but you know if somebody can say hey here's how we go from point a to point b i'll look at it and usually you know disagree with it but at the same time this was just yeah too much so most of the 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 competent biblical commentators they're just saying hey the folks were hungry and you know and it wasn't well, uncommon i, did, I, think I didn't say thing. any competent biblical commentators <laughs> i just know we've we we covered whether or not Esau was a vampire once. Right. So we're, we're not above looking at the at bad right. arguments and dispelling them. So, um, but I just thought it was, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think one of the things to bear in mind is at this point in time, it, it was not uncommon. And there's still places in the world today where, um, you know, eating raw meat, uh, not just fish. I mean, come on, we, 
gotta love your sushi. But uh, eating raw meat is, um, it, it was acceptable. It was just part of what you did. Um, and it wasn't something that was really looked down on it by most cultures, except for the Jews. And, you know, the, there are even, uh, I've seen documentaries of tribes in Africa that will actually drain the blood uh, of an animal that's living and drink the blood as, as a way to, to survive. And so this isn't distasteful to them in the way it's distasteful to us. As a matter of fact, it only became distasteful to us as a culture because it was part of Judaism. And that's how much the Old Testament laws have impacted our society even today. Mm -hmm. And I think we forget about that sometimes, that many of the things we consider normal are only normal because the Bible impacted the world we live in. Yeah. So, and if you if you want a, a good summary of that, uh, I know we've mentioned it before, but uh, Thomas Cahill's Gifts of the Jews, he covers mm -hmm. a lot of those uh, different cultural norms that kind of came out of Judaism, things like perception of history and perception of time, and and it's it's pretty interesting. So, well, and it just it just shows you that you know what we think of think of as normal doesn't have to be normal. And I, I think that's one of the things that we're kind of going to be getting from this whole um, situation with the COVID-19 is, you know, you keep hearing that phrase, new normal. And we're, we're all having to reevaluate what does normal look like. And, you know, for some of us, that's the first time that we've had to confront the idea that what we know and what we're used to doesn't necessarily have to be this way. And it can be in those little ways in life that we just have taken for granted and never thought to evaluate whether or not this is normal. Right. So. Right. I mean, well, and there's actually, I mean, oh my gosh, I mean, not to put too fine a point on the, the COVID stuff, but you, you talk about all the things that we, we think of as normal and reevaluating that. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the biggest thing I'm seeing that's, that's really coming out of this and I think is going to be, um, it, it is going to be a, a great, um, uh, it's going to be a great lesson for us, especially those who don't really study history, is how much um, politics and religion have been become conflated and how that normal is going to be just exposed. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and, you know, and the thing is, I think that we've tried to, to create a false dichotomy in our culture where uh, religion and politics are synonymous in a, in a really weird way, but then separate in very odd ways too. Mm -hmm. and, and there's just no consistency with it. And whereas in ancient cultures, I mean, religion and politics were one. There was right. no distinction and people accepted that as normal. But then even in, you know, that goes all the way up through Europe. And so in the Middle Ages and, and seeing how that happens and this idea that there could be separation of church and state. It, it was it was such a revolutionary concept, mm -hmm. uh, no pun intended. Uh, but then, uh, you know, we've in some ways we've tried to reclaim that. That as far as a lot of Christians I know, who's you know we as far as politics. So anyway, we can get lost into that. But I, I don't, <laughs> I don't think we can we can just make this this dividing line that says who I am as a believer. Uh, won't impact my politics. I, I think that's ridiculous. And if you can do that, are you really a believer? So just just a well, question. No, I'm, I'm not saying and, no, I'm not saying that there's no impact. I'm saying the fact that we're seeing a lot of people are more in love with their politics than they are with their uh, theology. Um, but amen. So moving on. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, verse 35. We're told that there's the, this is the first time Saul built an altar. So talk about a mixture of politics and religion there. Uh, the king is building an altar. And this is not necessarily a positive thing. 
right? Because Saul doesn't have the authority to do this. He's not a priest. He's not a prophet. He's just the king. He he's not supposed to be doing the things that Samuel does. Now Samuel, the prophet and the judge and the priest, has the authority to build these places. And so the fact that, that Saul, once again, he's overstepping his bounds. Why didn't he just feed the guys? Why does it have to be a religious event? Why, why does taking care of the troops involve a sacrifice to God? Why, why can't he just say, hey, the people are hungry, let's feed them? Uh, now, you can read that into that, what we need to for our current situation, what you will. But um, there's so many problems with what Saul's doing. It's not just building an altar. He's doing this at night. You don't offer sacrifices at night. And so Jonathan, through all of this, is being proven right. Saul has troubled the land. He has caused the people to sin. And we all know that when the people start to sin, this is when destruction starts to come on to the, the nation and that God will bring enemies to, to punish and chastise. We've seen that through the book of Judges. We aren't that far removed, for anyone who might have forgotten, from the book of Judges. Mm -hmm. This is the first ruler who is not a judge. So we, and we still have Samuel who is a judge or has been a judge through all of this. So verse 36, Saul announces that he is going to plunder the Philistine, Philistines in the morning. And the, the people, the people are still the same people. If you, if you don't believe we're that far from, sorry, that far removed from judges, they respond, do whatever seems good to you. Uh, that's the ESV translation. It's a lousy translation because you miss the connection. The Hebrew there is actually do what is good in your own eyes. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, the people are telling Saul, hey, we don't want to be different than what we were. We still want to be people who do what is good in our own eyes. We want to be led by somebody who does what's right in their own eyes. And so... We still have those very deep, deep ties to judges. And notice what Saul wants to do. He wants to plunder the Philistines. He's, he's not concerned about winning. He, he wants to have the spoils of the war for himself. Mm -hmm. And this is something that's going to get Saul into a lot of trouble. But we do have this, um, this very encouraging note because the priests finally start acting like priests. And they tell Saul, hey, you know, let's, let's wait a minute. Let, let's consult with God. Let's talk with him and see what he wants to do. Uh, don't rely on your own judgment. Maybe God wants us to do something else. And this is the first time that we've had priests actually doing this. Before they've, you know, they've done stupid stuff. They've stirred up problems in the land. They, you know, they've caused a civil war that almost destroyed Benjamin. They can be bought and sold. So we are seeing some progress in some areas. And this is very possibly due to the influence of Samuel over the priesthood at this point. Because Samuel, he's the guy in charge. He is the lead priest at this point. And so it's really good that we're starting to have a little bit of hope in what seems to be just overwhelming, dire situations that just keep happening within this nation. So... Saul listens, and he inquires of the Lord, as the, the priest have instructed him, but God doesn't answer. And Saul just assumes that God's silence is the result of sin. And so in verse 39, Saul makes this really interesting speech. He says, For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. So whoever sinned, 
This is the person that needs to die so that God will come back and he'll give us this blessing and he'll support us. And the thing is, none of the people answer him. The people know that Jonathan has broken Saul's vow. Mm -hmm. They know that, or sorry, oath. Um, They know that, that Jonathan's eaten the honey, but no one's willing to give Jonathan up. Now, the interesting point in this is Saul doesn't know this. Saul has no clue as to what Jonathan's been doing. He just throws him out there almost randomly and says, you know, I'll kill my own son if that's what it takes to get God to answer me. And now this is a disturbing statement coming from any father, but what it did for me, it reminded me of Reuben back in Genesis 42, 37, Mm -hmm. when uh, Benjamin was in Egypt and he tells Jacob, hey, I'm going to go get Benjamin, or we're going to take Benjamin with us, and if Benjamin is uh, harmed, you can kill my sons. And remember, Jacob wasn't impressed by that offer at all. Jacob thought that was just completely ridiculous, and it's not until Judah steps up and says, no, not my sons, but if I let any harm befall Benjamin, you can have me. I'm willing to put myself in that place. So we're, we're seeing that Saul really is not a good leader. This is why Judah received the promise of being the king of Israel at one point. uh, Well, one point in the future for his future generations. But he's the one who's qualified because he's willing to stand up and take the responsibility. He's willing to take the blame. He's not going to try to get out of it. And we know uh, already we've seen Saul talk about so many excuses. And those excuses are just going to, to multiply. So if you know your your Torah, which the people should have, I think they would have seen the same thing. And I think they would have been going, what's, what's wrong with our leadership that he would be willing to do this? And, you know, the fact that they love Jonathan enough to to stand up for him by, by remaining silent and not giving them up, it, that says a lot about their regard for Jonathan over Saul. Yeah. And... Yeah, well, and I was wondering, does this have? Um, would Saul have been? I can't remember the guy's name. The guy who stole the the idols and buried him under his tent. Aiken. Aiken. Yes, I, I, mm-hmm. I can never remember his name. <laughs> I, I was like, I know there's t- there's an A in it, um, <laughs> but the was. Do you think Saul would have been familiar with, enough with that story to be thinking that's the kind of situation that they have going on? I don't know if Saul's self-aware enough to, well, possibly, you know, he, he does say, Hey, there's something happening here. And he does seem to think that the cause is sin. Uh, I don't think he realizes that the, the cause really is his sin by making the oath. He, he doesn't, he's not self-aware enough to think that he could be the reason for it, at least not intentionally. Although I think there's a hint later on in the story that he thinks maybe he could have inadvertently done something. Saul's kind of metal-headed. Uh, he's not consistent with anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you really don't know how familiar he is with things because he had to be told the people were sinning. But at the same time, he knows that he needs to offer a sacrifice before he goes into battle. But he can't wait for Samuel to come do it. I, He's all over the board, and it, it's like he's mm-hmm. trying to to do all the right things, but because he doesn't really know what they are, it's like once an idea hits him, then that's just the direction he's going to run until someone says, wait, that's not the thing you're supposed to do, and pulls him back, and then he catches another good idea, so he's going to run the opposite direction. And then at times he almost becomes paralyzed 
and has to be goaded into doing the right thing, mm -hmm. even when he knows what it is. And I think this is what happens when people's faith is, is uninformed, when it's yeah. not been educated. And I, I think we can see that in believers today who, you know, you get tossed around by any wind that blows. And especially when people, you know, one of my pet peeves is when somebody comes up with a horrible theological statement and then they attach some kind of Bible verse to it that seems to vindicate their view. <laughs> that and, never and, happens. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I just, <laughs> it's like, did you, how hard did you have to work to rip that out of context to make it mean what you want it to mean? Uh, so this is the reason why I kind of hate inspirational uh, cards and posters and all of that stuff, because it, so often that's all it is, is somebody ripping a scripture verse out of context to oh, make yeah. you feel good. Um, yeah, uh, there, there's the one where it's like, uh, you know, all you, uh, you, you have but to worship me and all of this will be yours. <laughs> and, you know. Yes. It is written and it's got the reference to the temptation of Christ. Yeah, not so inspiring when you know who said it. Yeah. Uh, and so this is why we as believers need to be very careful. And I, this is something I try to make a practice of. If I read a verse and particularly, you know, not just like on a meme or something, but in a teaching, one of the first things I'm going to do is look it up and, and read it in context because I want to handle the word of God wisely and not be blown around by every, you know, every wave. And that's just, it's, it's not, it's not good for your, your sanity. It's not good for your soul. Uh, and it's part of being responsible with our faith. And, mm -hmm. it, you know, cause so often we, we kind of been told, Oh, if you, if you're a person of faith, you just need to believe and that's it. Well, you know, there, there's an element of truth in that. And I don't want to contradict that, that yes, when we have faith, when we believe and repent, then God is faithful to do his part. But that relationship should inspire you to do more and to be more and to actively pursue God's truth. And so if you aren't doing that, I'm going to ask how good is your faith relationship? So uh, I'm not going to deny you have one, but I'm going to ask you what kind of condition it's in. So anyhow, now that we've preached a little bit on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's see what else we can get ourselves in trouble with. We've already talked a little bit about politics. Yeah, breaking our own rules here. So, <laughs> but Saul, what what Saul does, and we're in verse forty. Uh, he divides himself and Jonathan from the rest of the people, and he prays. And I think we've all heard a prayer like this. If you've grown up in church, you know this prayer: "Oh Lord God of Israel." Why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is on me or Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. Give, and, but if this guilt be in your people, give Thumim. So overly pious, overly sanctimonious prayer. Um, you know, oh Lord God, oh Father God. I mean, it's this person who, who has to, um, you know, use this highfalutin religious language to, to be an okey about it. And, and he repeats it twice. And he, he refers to himself as God's servant. This is a humble brag uh, for anybody who, who missed it. Uh, this is what Moses is referred to. This is what Joshua is referred to. So he's basically saying, hey, you know, I'm as good as Joshua and Moses. And sure. And it's interesting that he divides him and Jonathan out because he's Jonathan isn't his only child. 
and probably not, probably not his only child present with him in camp. Mm-hmm. And yet he still has no clue as to what Jonathan has done. Nobody's told him. And we know that if nobody tells Saul something directly, he, he doesn't know it. So <laughs> this is one of the seven times that we, get, we have the Urim and Thummim um, mentioned in the Old Testament. The Urim says it means accused, condemned, guilty. The Thummim means complete, whole, or acquitted. And we're never given a real detailed description of what these are. We know they're two stones and they're carried in the ephod of the priest. And they're possibly two different kinds of stones, um, most likely uh, hematite or pearlized onyx or alabaster. So a white and a black stone. One of them has the the alpha, um, I'm sorry, the olive, got my languages mixed up. Mm -hmm. The olive, the first letter of the Hebrew uh, alphabet and then the Tav, uh, the the last letter and of the Hebrew alphabet. And so they're they're kind of unusual. We really don't know a lot about them. Like I said, we don't, we're never given a, a clear cut description of how they're um, how they're used, but it causes us to ask a question. If Saul's asking God questions, and the way he's getting the answer is for a priest to reach in the ephod and pull out one of these stones. How does God not answer? That seems like it's almost completely impossible uh, for anything like that to happen. So I got to, does, you know. I mean, does the priest doing... keep like grabbing and pulling out both stones? Or... Well, yeah. I mean, that that's the... Or, you know, do they disappear? He can't find them in there. I, I, I don't know. You know, Mary Poppins bag. Uh, w- what's going on here? Uh, sorry, I said that and I suddenly had this image of a priest reaching in and pulling out a frog. Uh, I don't know why. But anyway, um, but it did cause me to do some digging. So in the Masoretic, uh, the last section of Saul's prayer is mi- is missing that. Oh, Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. And but if God, but if this is guilt, give your people of Israel. Uh, Sorry, guilt is in your people of Israel. Give Thummim. Uh, the the longer explanation on that is only found in the Septuagint, mm. and there there's a couple of of explanations for why there is a difference. One is haplography. We talked about that before. The scribe wrote down the first line with, that began with "O Lord God of Israel," and he missed the second one because he didn't realize it was repeated. Or The second option is that the writer or the translator of the Septuagint decided that because people weren't familiar, they needed to add an explanation. And so in order to to have the explanation, he just included it in Saul's prayer. Mm -hmm. Now, if we just go with the the Masoretic, we we don't have the word thumim, we have the word Tamim, which means truth or sound. So the the only difference in there is the vowels, which we know the vowel markings were not included in the original Masoretic text. We only had the consonants. And so what Saul would be saying is, oh, Lord God of Israel, give truth. And I think that the Masoretic actually makes more sense because verse 42 specifically refers to casting lots, which is a totally different act than using the Urim and Thummim. Uh, they're two d- separate methods of discovering God's will. And lots would build on that Achan connection back in Jericho in Joshua 7. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that it, it it's more consistent with the story overall. 
and um, you know, lots you just cast them out. If if they don't fall in a way that can be read, or a way that can be um, interpreted by the priest, now you have a different situation where not getting an answer seems totally plausible. So, the first of the lots take Jonathan and Saul. Um, now it's interesting here that in this verse it says Jonathan and Saul. Ten times we have Saul and Jonathan together, and it's always Saul first. So anytime the Bible has an established pattern and there's a break in that pattern, you need to pay attention to what's going on. Okay. Now, in this case, what we're seeing is Jonathan is the, t- the subject, the, the main focus of the story. He's, he's the important person here. And also, he's the one who the people have the great affection and the loyalty to. And so there's this, this little hint that Jonathan, not Saul, is the person the people are really following. And I think that's really driven home when we recognize they aren't going to give him up. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're willing to, to go against the king in order to save him. So we're, we're going to talk more about how that works out. So this is the perfect setup for Saul. He, he, when he realized it was between him and Jonathan, the proper response, the proper biblical response would have been for Saul to say, uh-uh, take me. We don't need to go any further. It, 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 I'm the one who did it. I'll take full mm-hmm. responsibility. He doesn't do it. Uh, instead, he just, he just presses on. And this has caused a lot of commentators to wonder, did Saul want Jonathan to die? I mean, after all, why did he set him up as the patsy to begin with? And was Saul already feeling threatened by his son's popularity? I mean, we know that he loves David, but he's still willing to take David out in a heartbeat when once he realizes David's a threat. Yeah, and, and that kind of attitude, that would make sense, especially you were talking about how this story kind of has that uh, ancient epic type of mythological feel mm-hmm. to it, um, that you would have a king or, a, or, you know, of course you see it in Greek uh, plays all the time. and. Mm-hmm. With this idea that the the father is threatened by the son, and so they devise a plot to destroy them, which to me just seems, I don't know, that it doesn't seem well, like the best solution. You know, and I think a lot of people don't realize how often that it's pretty much universal in almost all mythologies that there is this adversarial relationship between fathers and sons, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you know, you get Zeus swallowing his own children. Uh, whole, you, you know, of course, Kronos did the same thing. And we can go back even further. But the, the point is, when we talk about this mystery, the fact that people missed Jesus being the Messiah, that they didn't understand that this was God's son, you know, a lot of us who, you know, from the comfort of our perspective, go, well, how in the world could they miss it? Well, the idea of a father and son, particularly a divine father and son, actually loving and respecting and obeying and submitting to each other, that was a foreign concept. And we're seeing here that it's still a foreign concept, even in ancient Israel. And so the fact that Jesus would actually submit himself to the father and seek his father's will, and the father would honor his son, I mean, it's such a huge moment at the at that baptism scene when when the father speaks and says this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased and this flips Mm -hmm. every mythology that we know about father and son relationships on its head and so 
if you're a people who come from this kind of mindset where where you know the father and son relationship is so adversarial what you know what kind of craving of the heart does that example really uh fulfill and I, I don't, you know, the idea that parents would actually love and care for their children, uh, it, it wasn't foreign, but it wasn't as big of a priority as it is today. Mm-hmm. And again, another way that, that Judaism actually impacts our, our world without us even realizing it. Right. So, um, yeah, nice little sidebar there. So anyway... <laughs> Um, Saul demands that, that Jonathan tell him what he's done. So this is the first point. We're in verse 43. This is the first point that Saul realizes, hey, I need to know what actually happened. I need to just stop accusing people before I, I get the facts. And Imagine. Jonathan, he, he right? Um, Jonathan, he confesses and he accepts it. Matter of fact, he says, Hanani here I am. I'm going to do whatever needs to be done. I'm going to commit to it before I even know what it is. And, you know, contrast that with how many times we get excuses from Saul. Mm -hmm. And Jonathan doesn't offer an excuse. He just accepts it. God's given his decree. He's spoken. Yeah, it was through lots, but it was still the way that God spoke. And, you know, when technically he could have really argued, I didn't know. And he could have found a loophole to exempt himself. He doesn't even try. He says, the king has spoken. My father has spoken. And I did it. And I'm going to accept it. And verse 43, I mean, it just blows my mind. Saul says, go do so. God do so to me. And more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. This is a formulaic pronouncement. And it's a curse that he's laid on himself, that, that Saul has laid on himself, essentially say, may God kill me if I don't kill my own son. And matter of fact, he, he uses the phrase, it's mutamut, which is the exact same phrase that we find from the Rakash, the serpent in that garden. Yeah. And now, dying. You... No, I, I, I'm yeah. sorry. I mentioned the uh, last, last week, I mentioned the idea of, of uh, Samuel putting himself in that list with Jephthah. Is this story supposed to remind us of Jephthah in some ways? Absolutely. And matter of fact, I just turned the notes over and that's where we are. That is exactly what it's supposed to do. Um, you know, you've got a leader of Israel, one's a judge, one's a king, but still the most uh, powerful political leader of that point in time. They're making a rash vow and that rash vow endangers their child. So Jephthah has the grace to be reluctant about whether or not mm-hmm. to kill his daughter. Um, Saul is just, he's almost eager. Let's get it done. Come on. You know, I, yeah. you, you, there's a, that contrast there. And as much as we, you know, I, I think we as Christians tend to recoil from Jephthah, uh, but we kind of look at Saul and go, well, you know, hey. And, and I think it kind of exposes our own bias and our own hypocrisy, even when it comes to dealing with our own scripture. Right. And because Saul's vow should be abhorrent to us and his response to his son's impending death should just appall us it, it doesn't matter that he's king who cares you, you want to kill your son there's a problem with you as a person you are fundamentally flawed so mm-hmm. and, and jonathan and and the daughter jephthah's daughter they both accept their fate neither one of them try to fight back you know they're like hey if this is what god's decreed i'm okay with it i can be good with it and you know 
we we see that um that kind of faith kind of shaming the fathers Mm-hmm. But Jonathan says, you know, his father had troubled the land and Jephthah tells his daughter, well, you've troubled me. So we have that that linguistic connection there. And each story kind of has that element of chance. You know, Jephthah, whatever comes out to meet me first, that's what I'm going to offer as a sacrifice. And with uh, Saul we've got and Jonathan, we have the casting of lots. And each time it, it's acknowledged that God's the one who brought the one to be killed to the forefront. And so there's there's definitely a connection there that I don't think we're supposed to miss. And I, I also wonder, now this is just me speculating, are we supposed to see Saul as someone who is ready and willing to basically perform human sacrifice in an effort to please God? Does he think obedience to God to get what he wants from God, not necessarily to actually obey, but to get what he wants from God would require that level of dedication, even though it's specifically against the Torah. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I kind of pick up hints there and I haven't seen anyone else say that. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. But the fact that that Saul's not speaking up for his son and, and re- reaffirms the vow and even makes an oath against himself. This guy's bloodthirsty, and he he doesn't have any qualms about killing anyone at this point. So, um, verse 45, the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. And so the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Now, Now the people speak up where before mm-hmm. they wouldn't give him up and they wouldn't rat him out. Now they're going to defend Jonathan. And the people override the decree of the king. Now, a king whose decree can be overturned by the masses isn't much of a king, right. especially not in this point in time. This is not someplace, you know, where the government has something like the Magna Carta or the Constitution to limit its power. The king had final say. Mm-hmm. And so any king who, who did not have that final word, there's a problem. And he's not very much of a king. So the sages point out that the people meet Saul's oath with an oath of their own. As the Lord lives, another formulaic pronouncement. They, they are going to, to say, we have the sovereignty to decide what's going to happen here. Mm-hmm. And by meeting the oath with an oath, they, they basically, they put, the situation they brought the situation to a head somebody's oath is going to have to be broken there there's no way that both oaths can be um fulfilled and we know uh, later on uh, david uh, he makes an oath to kill nabal and abigail says no don't do it and he she explains why and david david agrees and says no we, we don't have to do it so there is a, there's provision under the law that when an oath requires someone to sin, that the oath can be renounced. And the the wording here, the people are, are acknowledging and crediting Jonathan with working salvation with God. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this is high praise. I, I don't care who you are or what time period. This this is high praise. And, you know, he had acted in faith with God and God had respected that faith. But the um, people, most importantly, uh, the ESV says that they ransomed Jonathan. They actually redeemed Jonathan. 
is what the, the verse says. And so mm-hmm. the fact that they redeem him, that tells you that that there was an ability for Jephthah's daughter to be saved, but nobody was willing to speak up. And Bergen, actually, I thought this was an interesting point. He sees this as a critique of the monarchy and its limited powers, because basically it boils down to the king can instigate, but he doesn't have the power to fulfill. Yeah. If the, if the king's law is going to be fulfilled, then he's going to need God and he's going to need the people on his side. Apart from that, he's just a human being spouting off a lot of words. So. Verse uh, 46 through 52, we're given a summation of Saul's battles and his family and his actions. Uh, we're not given a whole lot of details at this point. They're really not important. Uh, we, we have some names that, that are important. Um, what we do need to know from this point is that he's a warrior king, and he is pretty competent on the battlefield. He does win several battles, and he's able to accomplish some victories, but he's not a spiritual leader. And he, he, he fails on that aspect over and over again. And this is what makes him unworthy to be a king. Well, I mean, we see that a lot. I mean, as far as, uh, you know, competency and military uh, strategy Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily make you a good, uh, politician or a, or a good leader of people in other Mm -hmm. aspects. I mean, and, and. And I, you know, no disrespect to any, anyone in the military on that. Uh, don't come right. after me. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I know, but I know there, there are some people that they, they, uh, once they put on that uniform, they just transform into someone else and they have everything going. Um, oh but, yeah. So I'm not going too much, too much farther in that, but <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't necessarily, uh, translate to, uh, political, uh, prowess or, or spiritual guidance. Yeah, and what's we're we're going to talk about? I can't wait till it gets the part where um, we actually bring David onto the scene, and we're going to show how the Bible uses a major tip off about why David is such a better spiritual leader that we don't even see into from our perspective today. So uh, we're, we're going to get to that. But Saul is just—he's lacking some fundamental aspects of just being a good person, mm-hmm. and. But we'll get into that in a later chapter, too. Yeah, so, when we start getting into David <laughs> hanging out around the palace. Yeah, yeah, and Saul <laughs> not being such a great guy. So. Yeah, terrible host. But, <laughs> right. <laughs> Don't go to his parties. But we also have the Amalekites mentioned. Uh, this is the Amalekites here in verse 48. Uh, that's a foreshadowing of uh, the events that are going to happen in chapter 15. And uh, the people are identified as having been plundered by Saul. Now, plundering foreign nations, defeated nations, that's going to be Saul's undoing. And so there's a reason why we have it mentioned twice in this chapter. We have two of Saul's sons. Now, there's, there's, they're mentioned but by name. He has other sons, but they're not important, so we don't get their, those names. We've got Jonathan, but we have um, Ishbosheth. He's going to come up later. And we have two daughters that are named, so we know that they're going to be important, um, Michal and uh, Marab. Abner's named, you know, he's, he's a commander of Saul's army. There's some debate whether he's Saul's cousin or Saul's uncle. It really doesn't matter. He's close family. He's serving Saul, and he, he's going to live until Joab, uh, David's commander, kills him. And this war against the, the Philistines is going to continue throughout all of Saul's reign. Uh, he never really... Uh, wins a decisive victory against them. 
But the chapter ends, and I think this is really interesting how, how the chapter ends. In verse 52b, it says, And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. So Saul is seeing and he's taking. But now he's taking the Giborim, the mighty men, and the Kayil, the, the valiant men. And Hannah's prophecy is being fulfilled. Remember, she talked about the reversals. And what was, what was going on in her day? The women were being taken. The women were seen and taken. Now it's happening to the men, and it's the king who's doing it. And so even though Saul has totally um, missed, you know, missed the goal on so many different things, he's mm -hmm. missed the point of what God would have him to do, he's still fulfilling the prophecies that, that Hannah started this book out with. And we we got to keep the, that in mind what Hannah's words were, because that's the foundation for first and second Samuel, but also first and second Kings. And so to, to keep that in mind, as we move through all those books, that's kind of a little bit of a challenge. It's a little bit of a chore, mm -hmm. but it's so worth it. And it's also fulfilling Samuel's prophecy. Remember back there where he told us, you know, if you have a king, he's going to take everything from you. This is what's going to happen. You cannot avoid it. But the, the the whole chapter, it has been designed to make us question whether or not Saul should have ever been king. Uh, did he have it in him at any point in time to actually be a good leader? And the answer to that on some levels is yes. As far as being an ancient Near Eastern leader or king like every other nation had, absolutely. He had all the credentials you could ever want. But then on the flip side, he is so lacking in his ability to reflect God and God's love and God's guidance in the nation. I mean, he doesn't even, he won't even seek it out until it's kind of forced upon him. And then when it's forced upon him, he may or may not listen, or he may have tried to stop it in mid-sentence, in mid like we saw last week. And we see that Saul is, he, he is this walking contradiction because he does take faith seriously. He does, um, he believes that God's capable of doing everything that God says he will do, but he's also, he, he's very paralyzed by his fear of God. Faith doesn't give him confidence like we see with Jonathan. Faith terrorizes him. Mm -hmm. And he, he makes really foolish decisions in the midst of that fear. And, well, you know, and the thing is, like you said, he's, he's very religious. He's very spiritual in certain ways. And, but the thing is, he's he seems like he's more in love with all the the trappings of the religion and more involved in uh, how religion can benefit him. And 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 I yeah. I think I'm basically kind of restating a lot of what you just said. But it again, and I'm I know I've, I've mentioned it several times, but it is that very superstitious attitude that he has. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, and, and he, he he he's presented that way so well, like when he. He calls and says, bring the ark to me. Or, you know, I, I, want the, I want the talisman with me. When a reverent attitude would have been, I, I'm going to go to God. Mm -hmm. I, I'll, I'll present myself before the ark. I'm not going to, to summon God to me. And, and so we, we have those definite connections back to Hophni and Fincas, Eli's um, two sons that were killed. You know, and when he's consulting the priest, he, he, he doesn't. 
he's consulting the wrong priest. He he's consulting the the children of Eli, the ones who've been cursed. He's not talking to Samuel. Samuel's the priest that appointed him. Samuel's the priest that anointed him king. Why in the world wouldn't he be talking to Samuel? And I think part of that's because he's scared to death of what Samuel's going to say. And so he surrounds himself with religious leaders who are already there on unsure footing and they kind of have this, this fear of what's going to happen with them. And so they're a little bit more likely to pander to, to what Saul would want than what Samuel um, might be. I mean, because Samuel doesn't care. And I think what's really interesting about the story throughout the whole thing, Saul is exposed for exactly who he is. Mm-hmm. But he's not exposed by an enemy. He's exposed by his son. It's the son who reveals the true nature of the father. Now think about that <laughs> and apply that to to Christ. And because yeah. one of the huge um, critiques of Christianity is that we believe in this angry, evil Old Testament God who, you know, isn't loving. He isn't kind. And it is until Jesus that we get to have this kind and loving um, Savior. But the, pro- the problem is the son in the Bible reveals the character of the father. Right. And so, and I think that's really interesting when we get to looking at um, David with Absalom and then um, Tamar and uh, the name escapes me, uh, the Amnon. Um, and Amnon, the son, in contrast with Absalom, and you, you see that dichotomy within David being presented within his within his sons so you know um but it also shows you that i think what i think is interesting with jonathan is jonathan jonathan's not a carbon copy of saul right and even though he reveals his father's nature he does it by resisting so there's two ways that this can be played out you can either reveal the father's nature nature by by resisting or you can reveal the father's nature by emulating. So you you have those those two things kind of working off each other and we see that done both ways within scripture. But I I, I love the fact that there is this consistency within that that kind of type um with within that metaphor that scripture presents us. And yeah. so well and that that kind of makes sense because um that those uh, who was I was listening to I was listening to someone they were they were talking about how I ideals and and uh, ideals actually present themselves to us as a judge, for whether mm-hmm. we realize it or not. And so we do kind of see, uh, you know, you know, Christ in that role when we, in the Book of Revelation. Um, and then we, uh, if you look at Jonathan, he's kind of put up there as the picture of, you know, the more the man after God's heart, not necessarily like David, but in contrast to Saul. And it is mm-hmm. through that presentation of this person who's not perfect, you know, he's not perfect, but but who is more uh, righteous, I suppose, than Saul. And well, we, it we kind really of exposes. Don't, Go ahead. We don't really have any critiques of Jonathan. Uh, throughout scripture, we, we really don't have anything uh, presented that's negative about him. Uh, he's probably one of the most um, empathetic characters in all of Samuel. And so this is the reason why we can grieve when when he dies, why we can be upset about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Saul, we're kind of relieved. Yeah, he's out of the picture. We can move on with the main show now. Uh, Jonathan, he he's brave. He's kind. He he's willing to be obedient to God. He he's never overstepping into that place where 
he he tries to take over or manipulate God. Uh, whenever he he faces his own death, Hanani, I'm here. Take me out uh, if this is what has to happen. And but you mentioned you know that man after God's own heart, in some ways very much so. And I think the writer is deliberately setting you up, making you think maybe. Maybe what God's going to do is, is take Saul out of the picture so that Jonathan can take his place. And that would have been the right thing as far as, you know, ancient Near Eastern politics for, for Jonathan to inherit that role. But of course, we, we've already got hints that maybe that's not what's going to happen. Maybe there's going to be something else on the horizon. And because you remember back with uh, Eli and his sons, Eli gets a, the word, hey, your kids are messing up. You need to put them in line. I'm going to kill them. Mm -hmm. And then things rock on and Eli never really does. I mean, he gives them a little slap on the wrist, but he never really stands up and says, you guys, seriously, knock it off. And well, he, he. Yeah, well, it's frustrating because I mean, he, he never he, he seems totally indifferent to anything that goes on with them until they mm -hmm. die. Yeah. And then and then he's upset, not so much that they died, but that the ark was lost. Yeah, exactly. And I think you're kind of seeing that reflected back in this character of Saul. He He's not really all that concerned about Jonathan. Why in the world would he set him up? Yeah. And so you you root for Jonathan. You you want him to win. And, and, you know, and when Jonathan is confronted with David, the man who's going to take his place in this world, Jonathan loves him. Mm -hmm. And Jonathan goes out of his way to save David's life. How can you not love Jonathan? And so, you know, it, it makes it even sadder that that the 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 prophecy, the the fulfillment of that of God's word to Saul is that Jonathan will not inherit what he probably could have done so well. Mm -hmm. And you just you just want to it, it does. It makes you weep. And I, I think that's that's what the story wants you to do. I, I think the writer wants you to understand there were so many other possibilities and so many other ways this could have played out. But Saul's stubborn, continual overstepping, manipulation, and being ruled by his fear ruined it not just for himself, but his entire household. Yep. And so, I, you know, I think that's what we have to kind of um, hang on to. And I think we need to realize that, you know, sometimes even great people in the Bible don't get great rewards. And uh, so whenever you start to hear a lot of this, oh, you know, you just got to trust and obey. It doesn't mean things are going to be peachy or a bed of roses. It just means that you're able to rest in God's goodness. And, you know, Jonathan, I think he he understood that. And I think I say that because I see him living a life where he's OK. This isn't exactly what we hoped for or what we expected, but God still got it. And even in the face of death. Mm -hmm. And so I mean, that shows you how real his faith was. And we, we, we don't need to discount that. We need to really remember that, that his, he was willing to, to be that obedient, not to his father. I mean, he, he was willing to tell his father off, but to God. Yeah. So that's all I've pretty much got on this chapter. So, okay. well, we're, we're good on time. So, uh, I mean, we're, close to time so let's go ahead and we'll break there and then we'll uh we'll pick up actually for us in a few minutes but for <laughs> everyone listening it'll be next week um thanks for joining us um hope you had a good time while we were uh chatting about uh jonathan and saul and 
other than that, I don't have anything else to add to it. Um, if you want to be part of the conversation out there, um, join us at Raven Creek SC on all the social media or ravencreeksc.com. If you haven't, um, would ask if you would just uh, leave us a review or rate us on iTunes. That does help us uh, with visibility um, and uh, gets us kind of, you know, helps us get the word out. And so we do appreciate that. And we appreciate you listening and we will see you next time. So have a good Bye. one. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.